0: In this second session, I want to explore New Testament conversions. You've heard me say this over the pulpit a couple of times, and I'm going to say it again so you can write it down. In the New Testament, I believe for proper understanding of conversions and preaching the gospel... I believe there are five components that need to be recognized. And if we miss any of these components, we are doing an injustice to the gospel, and we are doing an injustice to those who respond to our preaching. When it comes to the baptism of the Holy Spirit... I am able to confidently say that the Bible teaches this is a second and subsequent experience. And it can be studied as a doctrine separate from salvation. But I want to go on record, very clearly and very publicly, that the Bible does not allow people to be saved and do not move on to the baptism of the Holy Spirit The New Testament simply does not recognize such a condition. The Bible assumes that every believer has been baptized in the Holy Ghost very quickly. Let me say that again. The New Testament is written with the assumption that everybody who got saved very quickly got baptized in the Holy Spirit. There is no book in the Bible that is written to people who were saved but not baptized in the Holy Spirit. That does not exist. So I'll say it loudly, I will say it publicly, I'll say it again. The New Testament assumes that everybody who was born again was very quickly moved into the baptism of the Holy Spirit the same day preferably. Absolutely, that is correct. Absolutely, that is correct. You can't deny that from the Scripture. There are five components to successful preaching of the Gospel and successful conversions. First one is conviction of sin. There are too many people who get saved, supposedly saved, who have never been convicted of sin. They're there because they need help or something. And thank God the Lord will help them. But there has to be this groundwork of conviction of sin. Some people get saved because they want to avoid hell. Well, that's good, but you can avoid hell without being convicted of sin. Absolutely necessary. Some people get saved because it thinks it's going to help benefit their lives it's a self help thing. Wanna make me a better person? It's not gonna work. The foundation, absolutely, is conviction of sin. John 16, Jesus said when he's come, he's gonna convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Therefore, in my own view of evangelism and sharing the gospel with people, I'm not quick to lead anybody in a sinner's prayer. Why? because observations have been made i do not come up with these statistics these are observable statistics half of 1% listen to that half of 1% that means one out of every 200 people whoever say a sinner's prayer actually get saved one out of 200 you can't find them in time They didn't didn't stick with them. They didn't end up in the church. They didn't move on with God. Can't find them. Half of 1% of people who say sinners prayers. Actually end up being Christians. I did not invent that statistic. That. I don't know about you. Is a massive. Major concern. To me. That we have got to re-examine what New Testament evangelism is. Got to examine what it is. Half of 1%, 1 out of 200, remains faithful to the Lord after a sinner's prayer. Ouch. Deeply, deeply, ouch. Maybe that means we need to reconsider how we go about doing things. The first thing Jesus taught... When the Spirit comes, this conviction of sin—that the sinner has to agree and testify that his heart is corrupt, no matter how good a person he is—he's is a sinner, deserving of hell, and God is under no obligation to save him. But thank God, He's merciful. That sense of conviction of sin. Therefore, I'm not quick to lead people in sinners' prayers because I don't want to pick an apple before it's ripe. Let the work of conviction take place thoroughly. That's my approach. The second thing is that conviction of sin leads to repentance. Conviction of sin leads to repentance. Repentance basically is not an emotion... Repentance is a decision. The word means change your mind. It means you agree with the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you say, even though it hurts, you say, that's the truth. And amen. And it is a decision to turn from and to turn to. It's not going to be my purpose today to preach what the Bible says about the fruit of repentance. That will be... Another time. But repentance, which leads you to placing your faith in the finished work of Calvary. It's turning from, but it's also turning to God. And you're placing your faith in the finished work, the shed blood of Jesus, the finished work of Calvary. Have to be careful, but can we place our faith without being convicted of sin? If we want thorough, changed lives, it's got to follow this order. Conviction of sin, repentance, which leads us to placing faith in the finished work of Calvary. Thank God He's provided an answer to the question of the sin of which I have been convicted. Placing faith in the finished work of Calvary. The third item, I would say, is the act of regeneration. The act of regeneration. Whereby supernaturally the Spirit of God does something in you that causes you to become a new creation. Old things pass away. All things become new. You have passed from death unto life. You've gone from sinner to saint. Your your slate has been wiped clean. You are forgiven. You have been quickened. Life has been imparted to you. You, you, You're like an electric socket. And you've been plugged in. Hallelujah. But the next part. And to me, this is an integral part of the gospel. And I stand where I stand. The baptism on the Holy Spirit is an integral part of of the gospel message. We are doing injustice to ask people to say a sinner's prayer and not lead them into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is a subsequent divine empowerment. You might be plugged in, but turn the switch on. You might be plugged in, but turn the switch on. You see, when I came over here from Canada, I've never seen plugs like this. All you do is plug it in. You've got switches on your plugs. It's one thing to be plugged in. It's another thing to turn the switch on. Hallelujah. See, in Canada, we have the power when you're plugged in. <laughs> Over here, you've got to plug in and turn the power on. After you're plugged into God, you need the power switched on. It's power to live a victorious life. It's power to, to have victory over sin that you can never have in your life before. It's power to stand that you never had before. It opens your eyes to the scriptures. Why did I ever see that before? It's power to pray. It's power to worship. It's power to walk. It's victory over sin. You get sharing the gospel with people, and you never had the boldness to do that before. It's divine enablement. Why do we preach a gospel that does not leave people with divine enablement? I'll never know. Acts two, when Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost, Acts two thirty-eight. What's the gospel? Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remissions of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's the gospel. He did not say, ask Jesus into your heart, and that was it. He said, repent, get baptized in water, and baptized in the Holy Ghost. That is the gospel. Absolutely. I challenge anybody to prove to me otherwise out of your Bible. You can't do it. You see, over the years, the evangelical church has got so watered down and so watered down and so watered down that we're happy with people making decisions and we're calling that salvation. Salvation is more than a decision. It's deliverance from the very yoke of sin itself. It is the power of God. So the fourth element is divine empowerment. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That's that fourth element. The fifth element is the response of water baptism. The response of water baptism. Why is water baptism an option? You see, it's treated as if it's an add-on. You know you should be baptized in water, but we'll get around to it December next year. To me, that is a disservice. That is a disservice. Because old things are passed away, all things are become new. Now let's act it out. Let's act it out. Right now. Let's do it right now. It's not an option to be added on. Why are we happy with people making decisions... Without them being baptized in water, and without them being baptized in the Holy Spirit. Why are we do, do we do that? And you don't have the answer, I don't have the answer, but it needs to be addressed. It needs to be addressed. That fourth item, that divine enablement, is what we call the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is often the barriers of rationalization, the barrier of general unbelief that cause many people to fall short of divine empowerment. Throughout history, the church has long departed from a full gospel that emphasizes each of these five components. For instance, many churches are now content to only preach salvation with no emphasis on divine enablement for power, Righteousness or gifting the only concern is the forgiveness of sins but there's not even a concern for victory over the power of sin just make a decision and go into heaven and we've done our job no, we haven't no, we haven't done our job with that, absolutely not there's no call to water baptism people who accept Christ have no idea that they're supposed to get baptized in water because we don't tell them is not even part of the gospel. In spite of all the examples we have in the book of Acts, we ignore water baptism. In spite of it. The gospel has sadly been reduced to say a sinner's prayer for the forgiveness of sins. And we call that the gospel. Now that is a part of the gospel, but we have not presented the gospel if that's all we've said. There's far more to it than that. There is plenty of concern in the book of Acts That each and every believer be quickly endued with power. Plenty of concern. In Acts chapter 8, as I already referred to, when Philip went down to Samaria, when he got down to Samaria, he found disciples who had repented, been baptized in the water, but had not been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Immediately, Peter and John go down. For what purpose? To see these converts baptized in the Holy Spirit. The work of salvation, the work of the gospel, was not considered accomplished until they had been sealed with that baptism. I can't emphasize that enough. Peter and John were not happy that they had not been sealed with that baptism. The same concern is in Acts chapter 19. When Paul went to Ephesus... He was looking for some sign of believers. Couldn't seem to find anybody. And then eventually he finds 12 men hiding in a room somewhere. And Paul says, his first words to them is, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? What's behind that question? I'll tell you what's behind that question is this. You guys are so hard to find that obviously you've never heard of the Holy Spirit. Because if you were filled with the Holy Spirit, you wouldn't be so hard to find. You'd be the talk of the town. You would be the nuisance that everybody in this city is talking about. Have you ever heard of the Holy Ghost? They said, no, we've never heard of it. And Paul's immediate concern was these disciples would be duly anointed with power from on high with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely his first concern for these people. Absolutely. There is concern all the way through the books of Acts. That people would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Every work that Christ has done speaks of a blessing for us. For instance, his death on Calvary. His mighty death on Calvary. You know what that gives you and me? It forgives the forgiveness of our sins. His resurrection from the dead. You know what that does for you and me? It imparts new life. He ascended on high. You know what that does for you and me? He sends the Holy Ghost in power. The full work of Christ is His death, His resurrection, and His ascension. Let's not take the ascension out of the gospel. His death means your sins are forgiven. His resurrection means new life is imparted. And His ascension ascension means the Holy Ghost has been sent. Let's preach the entire gospel. I want to address typical in any Pentecostal denomination abuse that always happens. One of the people, reasons people shy away from these things is because, well, we heard of wildfire. We heard of things that got out of control. We, we, you know, and we just didn't want to go there. And our willingness to shut things down in case something goes wrong, that's not a biblical response. The biblical response is to bring correction not to shut down. Brain correction, not shut down. I will point out, at some point in here, abuses that have been very common in every Pentecostal denomination. Speaking in tongues is one of those issues that creates controversy and falls into abuse. Actually, it was the abuse of tongues that motivates 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. So, in one say, I say, thank God for the abuse, because if it never happened, we never would have got the instruction in chapters 12, 13, and 14. Um, But here is a pattern that happens in every church, every Pentecostal denomination. Here is a pattern that happens. First of all, there is a hunger for the things of God. We read the New Testament and say, it's not happening to me, I want it. There's a hunger. We hunger and we thirst for the things we read about in Scripture. When we see Jesus healing the sick, and then we see in the book of Acts, the apostles healing the sick, we say, why aren't we doing it? There's something wrong. And there's a yearning, and there's a desire, and there's a cry, God give us back! Pentecost. Give us back what we see in the scripture. We're sick and we're tired of not living powerful lives. We're sick of people going to hell and we can't seem to do anything about it. We seem sick and tired of the yoke of sin in the city, but we're unable to change the nature of the city. And we long and we yearn for the power of God to make a difference. And it begins with hungering and thirsting for the things of God. We want it. We hunger for divine enablement. We hunger for the power to be evidence in our experience like we read in the Bible. We want it. These are the days of Elijah. we sing. Well, are they? Are they? Are these the days of Elijah? Do you know if we've got that power that Elijah had in confronting Ahab and Jezebel of his day, do we have it? You know, we have this hunger, we have this desire. And then the second thing is that God answers our prayer. And He graciously pours out the Holy Spirit on those who have prepared their hearts and who are earnestly seeking for the things of God. And He graciously pours out the Holy Spirit. Hallelujah. And then we enter new realms that we've never had before. We begin to see gifts of the Spirit operate. People are speaking in tongues. In house meetings, we lay hands on one another, and somebody actually got healed. And somebody got saved, and, and the spontaneous stuff is happening, not just in church services, but you're so full of the Holy Ghost, you can't help but get together in somebody's home just to pray. Nobody asked you to, but you just got to get together with somebody, and you got to pray, and you're seeing answers to prayer, and you're seeing miracles, and, and gifts of the Spirit, and, Pastor, what's happening to me? I just felt these words rile up at me, and I wanted to speak these words out, and you're beginning to prophesy, and... All of these things starting to happen. And it's a whole new realm for you. And then, misuse sets in. Abuse happens. Some people are lifted up in spiritual pride because God uses them in prophecy or, or they laid hands on somebody. Or their all of a sudden exaltation to power has puffed them up and they become unteachable people. And they start teaching all sorts of strange doctrines. They begin to speak about things that they have no idea what they're talking about. Strange doctrines come out. Misuse sets in you won't find a Pentecostal denomination in history that has not gone through this. It doesn't exist. There is not a Pentecostal denomination in the world today that hasn't gone through this. When it gets to this point of misuse, here is the choice the church has to make. You either fail, go back to your rigid denominationalism, go back and be stuffed by tradition, or die out as ineffective, just simply die out in time, or get some teaching. Every church is brought to that edge. Every denomination is brought to that edge. Here's your choice. Shut it down, fail, die out or receive teaching if the church would receive teaching in a humble meek manner then it can get through the phase and become very very effective if it fails to receive teaching at this point of its history it is doomed to failure That is the history. It's the pattern of history and it's also the pattern of the Corinthian church as we will see. They were into all sorts of abuses and Paul had to come on them in such a strong manner and bring correction because the existence of the church depended upon them receiving correction. What are tongues? Let me just ask the question. When somebody speaks in tongues, what are they? The Greek word in Acts 2, verse 4, they spoke with tongues, is glossolalia. Anybody ever heard in English the word glossary? What's a glossary? Kind of like a dictionary. When they spoke in tongues, you will notice that in King James Bible, the word unknown is in italics. Whenever you see in the King James Bible anything in italics, that means that word is not there in the original Greek language. The original language is they spoke in tongues. But the translators, to help you and I better understand what is meant for our English sensibility, it's unknown tongues. They spoke supernaturally in foreign languages That were not known to them. It wasn't just gibberish. It was real languages. But unlearned by them. Unknown to the speaker. It's not an unknown tongue in the sense that somebody else in the world doesn't know it. It's unknown to the speaker. You might be speaking some language and you didn't know it but you're speaking Swahili. It's unknown to you But somebody in Rwanda or somebody in Kenya would understand it. It's an earthly language not known to the speaker. That's why it's called unknown. It's not unknown in the world, but it's unknown to the speaker. If you keep on reading through Acts chapter 2, when 120 from the upper room spilled out on the street, well, it was the day of Pentecost, which means Jews from all over the world had gathered there in Jerusalem to celebrate the Old Testament feast of Pentecost. Now that means there were... Well, let's just turn to Acts chapter 2. That just means there were people from all over the world that had been gathered there. The city of Jerusalem was swollen greatly in size. Swollen greatly in size. In Acts 2 and verse 4, it says they began to speak with other tongues. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. They began to speak in glossolalia. But then it says in verse 5, And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. They were disturbed because that every man heard them speak in his own language. And they were all amazed and they marveled saying one to another Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? How is it that we are hearing every one of them speak in our Now the Greek word is dialect They're speaking in our dialects wherein we were born And then there just gives a list here the Parthians, Medes, and goes on and on And in verse number 11 it says We do hear them speak in our dialects the wonderful works of God. Now, that means the ones 120 who were speaking in tongues did not know the language they were speaking, but others understood them. So, what is speaking in tongues? It is, according to Acts chapter 2, it is you are speaking in a language that is not known to you. It is a foreign language to you, but somebody else in the world would understand it. But you don't. It's unknown to you. In the book of Acts, there are always earthly languages. Always earthly languages. Now, some people, on the strength of First Corinthians 13 and verse 1, where Paul says, you know, even though we speak with the tongues of men and of angels... But if we don't have love, it profits me nothing. You know, what's the use of it? Now, some people on the basis of 1 Corinthians 13 suggest that perhaps speaking in tongues is not just an earthly language, maybe it is a heavenly language that angels speak. Is it a heavenly language? Yes or no? Well, at the end of the day, we don't really know. Because my... My preference, though I, I can't, nobody can prove one way or the other, is that Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is speaking with hyperbole. He's speaking with a hint of sarcasm, as he does quite often through 1 Corinthians. The evidence in the book of Acts is that the tongues were always earthly languages. And Paul is saying, if you speak with an earthly language, ha, even if you could speak an angel's heavenly language, and you don't have any love, And I think he's just using hyperbole. He's not stating that tongues is angelic language. It's just hyperbole. He's exaggerating to make a point. However, at the end of the day, we really don't know on that issue. There's no doubt that the Corinthians believed that they spoke with angelic languages. Just for your knowledge because this will help you to understand the Corinthian issue, when we get to chapter 14, is that the Corinthians were fascinated with angels. They were fascinated with angels. Their, their sense of spirituality involves speaking in tongues, and involved encounters with angels, and not unlike some charismatic revivals in the world today. I mean, just recently in history, You know, and I came under a lot of flack because of the position that I took on the whole Lakeland revival uh, in Florida thing. You know, their fascination with angels was immense. Their fascination of angels was immense, you know. To the point, don't listen to Jesus, you've got to listen to the angel. Ah. My goodness. Don't listen to Jesus, listen to an angel. Who do you love, angels or Jesus? But they were fascinated. People get fascinated with supernatural encounters. Do angels minister? Of course. Are they there in the New Testament? Of course. Do they intervene in the lives of you and I? Of course. They're ministers sent heir to those who are the heirs of salvation. Of course. Hallelujah. Thank God for the ministry of angels. But never to be fascinated by them. Never to be fascinated with them. You know, was it Mary in the garden, you know, goes into the tomb and there's an angel, you know. And her question was, where is he? In other words, I'm talking with an angel, but I don't want you, angel, I want Jesus. Can you imagine having an angel walk in here and say, Wonderful, but I really don't want you, I want Jesus instead. You know, if an angel appeared here, we go, wow, we're really into the spirit now. Barry's response was, get out of here, I want Jesus. There's this fascination. And the Corinthians were fascinated with angels. Just for your reference, if you just want to note these verses, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9 suggests their fascination with angels. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 9, that we are you know, marched in front of angels. 1 Corinthians six one. Don't you know that we will judge angels? First Corinthians eleven ten. Head coverings. Oh, we should do that one sometime, don't you think? First Corinthians eleven verse ten. Head coverings. And do it because of the angels. And in first Corinthians thirteen, verse one, though I speak with the tongues of angels. All these verses are hinting and suggesting that this Corinthian church was into this kind of False spirituality about tongues and gifts of the Spirit and angels as if they had this elite, powerful thing. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 with me. And I need to answer a criticism that is often brought against Pentecostal churches. A criticism that is often brought against speaking in tongues. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we have in verse number 8 this statement. In the middle of the verse, it says, Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Aha! So the critics go, the day of speaking in tongues is over because Paul said they will cease. And if you want to watch, read through church history, you will discover by the end of the first century that almost all gifts of the Spirit, including tongues, by the second century more or less did cease. So they're going to say, well, the Bible says they would cease, and church history proves that they did cease. However, their reasoning is very faulty. Because the same moment tongues cease, according to verse 8, so does knowledge. If you're going to throw tongues out, you better throw knowledge out with it. And no one wants to say knowledge has vanished away. But if you're going to be a true interpreter of scripture, you've got to take the whole package. If you're going to throw tongues out, throw knowledge out with it. Throw prophecy out with it. Why did tongues cease by the second century? Simply, I could ask the question in the history of Elam, 50 years past George Jeffries, why did tongues cease? In any denomination movement. When you get to that second and third generation, why does it die out? Not because God wants it to die out, but because the church is losing its testimony. That's why the lack of faith, the lack of vibrant faith will cause all of these things to be extinguished. Let me work through 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13 with you, please. Let me read it. Charity never fails. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abides faith, hope, and love, these three. And the greatest of these is love. People read that and say, well, gifts of the Spirit, including tongues, is childishness. Infant. And then I become a man, I put away this kind of stuff. Don't need, those are baby things, and now I'm a grown man. And we read, evangelicals read through that. Ah. How sad that they have given such an interpretation. Paul is not limiting the gifts of the Spirit to the first century only. But what he is doing, he's contrasting the gifts of the Spirit in the present age now against life in eternity after Jesus comes back. That's what he's doing. People think now that we got the New Testament written out, we don't need gifts of the Spirit. There are some Pentecostal churches, one known as the Apostolic Faith, the Apostolic Church, here in the history of Ireland for sure, that one of the abuses they got into and still embrace is that they have elevated the office of the Apostle and the Prophet today as being equal to or superior to Scripture. that is still their position today and you can trust tongues and interpretation and prophecy through people more than you can trust scripture and we don't go to the scripture for guidance we go to the prophets for guidance that is still in the mindset of the apostolic church here in Northern Ireland today that is wrong Absolutely wrong. Yes, there is a role for apostles and prophets. I would wholeheartedly agree that we do need to recover the ministry of apostles and we do need to recover the ministry of prophets, but I would not elevate them to that position as they have. That is simply wrong. But outside of that, most Pentecostals would never say that the gifts of the Spirit replace the Scripture. They would never say that. Some do, but they're in error. Never. What Paul is talking about in First Corinthians chapter 13 is life now as compared to life after Jesus returns. When that which is perfect has come is not the Bible. When that which is perfect has come that is the new world order, so to speak, after the appearing of ...of Jesus. The gifts of the Spirit... ...are temporary... ...in this sense. Every gift of the Spirit is temporary. He just picked three. Prophecy, tongues and knowledge. But let me use the example of of the gifts of healing. While sin... ...is still present in this world... ...sick bodies... ...need to be healed. After the coming of Jesus... ...when you've got resurrected bodies... Who needs to be healed? That gift will cease to exist. Why? Because there's no need of it. But what the gift of healing is, is a foretaste. An appetizer. God wetting your appetite. You want to know what glory is going to be like? When you see a miracle of a person getting out of a wheelchair. Have you ever seen it? I have. I have witnessed that. Thank God I've witnessed things like that. When you see somebody who can't get out of a wheelchair, does get out of a wheelchair, that is a foretaste of the resurrection to come. The power of God lifting somebody, except when Jesus comes, is not just going to be lifting somebody out of a wheelchair, it's going to be lifting somebody into eternity. Every gift of the Spirit is appetizer, a foretaste of the power that will be revealed in fullness when sin ceases to exist. But while sin does exist, the Spirit of God is breaking in on human history. And every time the Spirit of God breaks in on human history, it's a gift of the Spirit. But the day will come when He doesn't have to break in because He will be here in fullness without sin even present. Oh, hallelujah. Come on. He's, should I start preaching Jesus, the soon coming King? This is what we're looking forward to. This is it. Paul's view is that the gift, by the gift of the Holy Spirit, the future has already broken into the present. We're already tasting the powers of eternity. That's what 1 Corinthians is all about. But the day will come when you don't just have to taste it, you get to sit down to the meal. The day is coming when you don't have to heal the sick, you're going to have resurrected bodies. The day is coming, you won't need a word of knowledge because the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. So when that which is perfect has come, it's referring to the world after Jesus appears. It's referring to the powers of Eternity, In the words of Hebrews 6, verses 4 and 5, it's put this way. We taste the powers of the world to come. Having tasted the good word of God. Having tasted the powers of the world to come. See, the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit are your guarantee of your future existence. It's your guarantee of your future existence. But your experience of the Spirit as you know it now will one day pass away because it's only partial. It will pass away in the sense you will have the completion. Absolutely. Hallelujah. When he talks about childhood here, I put away childish things, it's not suggesting that the gifts of the Spirit are child's play. And that now that we're adults, we're kind of just more preachers. As if that's not suggesting that whatsoever. What he's saying here is the gifts of the Spirit are like a mirror. They're like a picture. Do you want to see what like Jesus is? Look in the gifts of the Spirit and you'll see them. He's healing. He's knowledge. He's wisdom. He's revelation. The day will come when you don't need a picture. The day is you'll see Him. And the gifts of the Spirit are like the picture. The gifts of the Spirit are like a mirror in which Jesus is is reflected. Right now, we need the gifts of the Spirit. Whoever heard of a carpenter or you say a joiner, Going to the job site, but he never takes a hammer with him. Who ever heard of such a thing? Do you know, join, do you have joiners like that here? That they don't take hammer or saw or tools or screwdrivers to their workplace? How much work would you get done if you never took a hammer with you? How much if you never took a screwdriver? How much work are you going to get done? How much evangelism are we going to get done? Without the gifts of the Spirit. How much building up of the body of Christ is going to happen without the gifts of the Holy Spirit? These are the tools that God has given. Let's not show up for the, at the job site without our tools. I can't emphasize that enough. These are not optional things. Absolutely necessary for world evangelism. For missions. And for the building of the local church. In verse 8 of chapter 13, Paul mentions three gifts. He uses the words, they will fail, they will cease, they will vanish away. It's very easy by just comparing this verse with other verses in 1 Corinthians to see what he is talking about. The first that he mentions is prophecy. And I think there's a reason he mentions prophecy. Because when it comes to church services, that is his preference. Not tongues, but prophecy. But he's saying, even what I prefer will pass away. Your tongues will pass away, but even the gift I prefer will pass away. When does all this pass away? The other two, knowledge and tongues, well, they're favorite ones. He's already dealt with knowledge in chapters 8, 9, and 10. He's about to deal with tongues in chapter 14. But in each case, these manifestations are needed between the first and the second coming of Jesus. These words, they will cease, that means they will fail, they will pass away, they will be stilled, they will be vanished. When does that happen? Well, let's. I'll show you other places in First Corinthians where these words are used. Chapter one, verse number (coughs) twenty-eight. Chapter one, twenty-eight. It says, "In the base things of the world, things which are despised." Hath God chosen things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. When it says, he's going to bring things to naught, that's the same word, as you find in 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Chapter 2, verse number 6. It says, Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of the world, nor the princes of the world, that come to naught. That phrase Come to naught is the same Greek word you find. Chapter 6, verse number 13. Meats for the belly, belly for the meats, but God will destroy both it and them. That word destroy is the same word in 1 Corinthians 13. God will destroy. Um, Chapter 7. Verse thirty-one it says, "They that use this world not as abusing it, for the fashion of this world passes away." It's the same word, "passes away." Can you tell me when is this world going to pass away? When? At the coming of Christ. That's what. That's what these verses are referring to. Go to chapter fifteen of 1 Corinthians verses 24 to 26 then comes the end I wonder when that is then comes the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God even the father when shall he put down all rule and all authority and power for he must reign till he put all enemies under his feet the last enemy to be destroyed is death there's the word again. When's all that happen? At Jesus' return. The words are the same. So when will the gifts of the Spirit cease to exist? When Jesus returns. Not when you get your Bible printed. At the appearing of Jesus. And until then, they are absolutely necessary. In 1 Corinthians 13, in verse number 10, that word appears again. It says, When that which is perfect is come, then that which is part will be done away. That word done away. Therefore, tongues, along with prophecy and knowledge and other gifts of the Spirit, are absolutely essential to the life of the church Today. I want you to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where the very same thing is going to be said. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. As we will see, this Corinthian church had become very abusive. Especially on the issue of speaking in tongues. Paul's response was not to shut tongues down. It was to bring correction and guidelines through proper teaching. I want you to notice in chapter 1, starting verse 4, his prayer for a church that is abusing the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 4. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace which was given you by Jesus Christ. I find that amazing. What a large heart Paul has. How I wish my heart could be as expansive as Paul's at times. This church is giving him sleepless nights. Headaches, I suppose. Paul could put up with a lot of flack when it comes to stones and shipwrecks and beatings and dragged out of the city as dead. And he could put up with all of that. But his own words, what hurts the most? What hurts the most 1 Corinthians 11, what hurts the most is the abuse he takes from the churches that he so loves. His heart burns because of it. And yet, to this church that has absolutely rejected Paul, I can't get into the history between the Corinthian church and Paul this church has rejected him. This church wants nothing to do with him. This church doesn't think Paul is very spiritual. This church doesn't think that Paul is very wise. This church doesn't think Paul is very knowledgeable at all. They think they are far more spiritual than Paul because they have angels and wisdom and knowledge and speaking in tongues. And Paul, what have you got? Shipwrecks and all that. And They've rejected Paul. And yet he can say i thank god for you please god work in my heart please god work in my heart i thank god for you wow it says i i thank god for the grace the greek word for grace is charis the greek word for gift is charisma I thank God for the grace He's given to you. And what grace is He talking about? Verse 5. That in everything, you are enriched by Him in all utterance, in all knowledge. I thank God for the presence of spiritual reality, even though they're abusing it to the hilt. He says, I thank God for the presence of this charismatic phenomena in your midst. I thank God you are enriched in every kind of utterance and in all knowledge. Which, in chapters 8 and 10, he'll take him to task on it. But, but you thank God for their experience. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Well, let me unpack that. I like to preach this on a Sunday sometime to unpack these verses. What he is saying, if you read it 1 Corinthians chapter two, verses one to five, in conjunction with this, he says, "When I came to you in Corinth, I made a decision not to know anything except Christ and him crucified. I don't want your faith to be in some scholar's exposition of anything. I want your faith. To rest on the fact that you have encountered God in power. I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of wisdom. gifted of, of man, though. No. Man's word of wisdom. But I was determined to come in the Spirit's word of wisdom. So that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men but because you encountered the power of God. He says my speech was not that of a scholar even though Paul was a scholarly man. He says my speech and my preaching was a demonstration of the power Of the spirit. In other words, he believed preaching was a divine utterance. Not just he was a scholarly man who knew how to put something together. It was a gift. It was divine utterance. It was an encounter with the spirit of the living God. Go back to chapter 1. He says, I thank God that your initial experience of the gospel came that way. That you're enriched with all utterance. And with all knowledge. Verse number 6, it says, this is how the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. This is how the gospel brought results to you. So verse number 7, while you are waiting for the coming of the Lord, make sure you come behind in no gift. Oh, but you see, the tendency today is just shut it down. Let's shut this down because it's so abusive. Let's shut this down because people are going off the rails. Let's shut this down because, 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 because. Paul's response was, Thank God for the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Thank God for the gifts of the Spirit. Thank God for the manifestation of the power of God. That power brought results in you. It brought you out of life to death. It brought you to Christ. Thank God for it. And let's, we're going to keep on going with the gifts of the Spirit until Jesus comes. This is how results are brought into the church. Verse number eight, he goes on to say, with these gifts, who shall confirm you to the end? It's going to take the gifts of the Spirit to do that work of confirmation right up till Jesus comes again. For what purpose? That you would be blameless unimpeachable, faultless, in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. What he is saying is going to take that mighty operation of the things of the Spirit to get you to that place where you're ready for Jesus' coming. That's what he's saying. But these were terribly being abused. Terribly being abused. But Paul says, the answer to abuse is not to shut them down. The answer to abuse is teaching. And get it right. Because if you shut it down, you're disqualifying yourself from getting a good report at the judgment seat of Christ. And who wants that? It's not do away with it. It's not being in ignorance. It's getting proper instruction and proper teaching. That is his concern. Misuse of the gifts of the Spirit lead to self-deception about one's own sense of spirituality. And what Paul is saying here is you who are so proud of your spiritual experiences who think you have arrived Do you understand that you're actually disqualifying yourself from arriving? You think you've arrived, but that attitude disqualifies you from even arriving. Such deception when it comes to abuses and gifts of the Holy Spirit. Let me say very quickly, and then we'll take a break here for a bit let me just get this thought out so we can have a clean start when we come back. What is the purpose? I just want to talk, what is the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit? What's the purpose? Divine enablement is the key word. Divine enablement. Hallelujah. At the baptism, I like this definition, Immortal spirit falls upon mortal flesh. Immortal spirit falls upon mortal flesh. In the words of Hebrews 6, 4, 5, you taste the powers of the world to come. Eternity comes alive to your senses. Eternity comes alive. While you're still in this mortal body, eternity has come alive to you. Let me put it this way. Jesus said, as long as I'm here, I'm in one place at one time. I'm restricted to a physical body. But when he says, I'm going to send another comforter. In the Greek language, there's more than one word for another. The one that Jesus used when he said, another comforter is this. Of the same caliber as myself. Like me. And what the Holy Spirit does. Is he takes Jesus from one physical body. And he universalizes Jesus. So Jesus is everywhere at the same time. When you have the Holy Spirit, Jesus is keeping His promise. I'm with you to the end of the world. I don't have to go find Him in Jerusalem someplace. He's with me right here. In the same power. The power that He had to heal the sick is present with me. The power to prophesy. I don't have to go find Jesus He's been universalized in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. The purpose of the Holy Spirit is to make eternity alive and tangible to your senses. It is to give you divine enablement. It's to empower you. It does several things. One of the things it does, it gives you power to witness. Acts 1.8, you shall receive power and you shall be witnesses. Luke twenty don't you leave Jerusalem and start preaching until you are endued with power from on high. The baptism of the Holy Spirit gives you divine enablement to pray. It gives you divine enablement to worship. The baptism of the Holy Spirit causes the Bible to come alive to you. It's not a newspaper anymore. It's God himself speaking to you. It's the presence of Of the living God. You are immersed in that tangible presence of the living God. Prior to the beginning of the second century, or the 20th century, late 1800s, you study church history. There were many denominations, such as the Methodists, that taught a second work of grace. And to them it was a work of sanctification for holiness. At that time in church history, people were alarmed at the sad state of morality and the lack of power for righteousness in believers. They saw these old Methodists that the Bible taught a further experience, and they pushed forward in prayer until they came into a new experience of the power of God to grant them righteous living. At the end of the turn of the 20th century, early 1900s, the same situation occurred. Except this time the church was lamenting a lack of any real power for the miraculous. The stories of the book of Acts were just not being repeated in the life of the church. So there was a generation a hundred years ago that cried out for a return to apostolic power. They cried out because they saw that God would answer a cry for righteous living and now they began to cry out for power. There was a generation that paid a price. They prayed, they prayed, and they sought God. And they cried out for a return to apostolic power. And they got it. They came into a new experience where they were not just empowered for righteousness, but this time the emphasis was power for the miraculous. Power for the miraculous. Very quickly it would be taught, we'll get into this, not at the moment, we'll get into it, that speaking in tongues would be the sign that you had been baptized. Over the hundred years, that position has come and gone and changed a lot. Should you speak in tongues? Should you not speak in tongues? Let me just conclude this session by reiterating something I had taught earlier. What is New Testament evangelism? New Testament evangelism is not getting decisions out of people. New Testament evangelism is displacing the powers of darkness by the power of the kingdom of heaven. It's healing the sick. It's open the eyes of the blind, the deaf. Jesus even went as far as to cleanse the lepers and raise the dead. New Testament evangelism is displacing the powers of darkness with the power of God. That is the rules, the command that Jesus gave to his disciples when they went out two by two. That is what Jesus did. Everywhere he went, he went about doing good, healing all the were oppressed of the devil, anointed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus would pray for the sick. He was displacing the powers of darkness. This is the foundation of Elam. This is how Elam began. This is their burden. This is where it started a hundred years ago. Just this thought, and I'll quit. In John chapter 15, talking about the Holy Spirit. In verses 26 and 27. John 15, verses 26 and 27, then we all break. Talking about the Holy Spirit, Jesus said this. When the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of Truth, which proceeds from the Father... He, listen to this, who is He? The Holy Spirit is a person. Did you notice? Not yet. He. Holy Spirit is a person. He shall give witness about me. He will testify of me. And then in verse 27 he says, And you also shall bear witness, because you have known, been with me from the beginning. Put these verses together. What's witnessing? What is evangelizing? Let me just create a a definition for you. Witnessing evangelizing is eavesdropping on what the Holy Spirit is already saying to somebody. Eavesdropping on what the Holy Spirit is already saying to somebody. The Holy Spirit is already bearing witness about Jesus to that person without you. He's already speaking and testifying. He's already convicting the world of sin and of righteousness and judgment. And he's already at work in that sinner's heart before you even approach them. He's testifying of Jesus. Your part is to eavesdrop on the whole what the Holy Spirit is saying. And by gifts of the Spirit, it's just simply to repeat to them what the Holy Spirit is already telling them. It's not you with a prearranged agenda going with them and reading through this and you've done your work of witnessing to the people. No, that's not what Jesus is teaching. He is teaching you eavesdrop on what the Holy Spirit is already saying to the people and you become the mouthpiece of what the Spirit has already spoken to that person. The Holy Spirit is already witnessing. Now you come along and you bear the same witness to that person. It's eavesdropping. In other words, it's all supernatural. How did Jesus know the woman at the well had five husbands? How did he know that? How did Jesus know Lazarus was already dead? How did he know that kind of stuff? You see, all the way through the Gospel of John, Jesus says, I don't say anything unless I first hear the Father say it. And we want to go and say things without hearing what God is saying. Jesus said, I only do what I see my Father do. I am constantly eavesdropping on what my Father is saying to everybody. I only say what I hear my Father say. I only do what I see my Father do. I don't go with my own agenda about how to witness. I simply eavesdrop on what the Father is already saying and what He's already doing. And Jesus is saying, when the Holy Spirit comes, that's how it works. He bears witness. And you just say, and you just do what you hear the Spirit saying and the Spirit doing. That is New Testament evangelism.